Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be with you all again. And how good is it that there is sun this morning and not cold, wet rain? Mercy, this Lent has been challenging, even just in terms of the weather. Um, Lord is good to us. Okay, well, there are certain moments in life that you cannot stay silent, right? The situation at hand, it demands your attention and your interest, but it also demands your attention, your wisdom, even your judgment. You have no choice in these situations but to become personally invested. These situations demand a decision between right and wrong and good and evil, and so it was just a week ago. I am talking about the Oscars. I'm talking about the slap heard round the world and about whether you this morning are on Team Will or Team Chris. You cannot stay silent. You have to choose. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, then you live a very privileged life, and I'm jealous of you. I'll catch you up to speed. It's the Oscars. Comedian Chris Rock made an offensive joke about Will Smith's actress wife, Jada. Will Smith went on stage and slapped Chris across the face. It was shocking. It was totally unexpected. It was also, it was fascinating to see people's responses to this because, um, because it drew out very different responses in, in all kinds of people. And you, you couldn't guess, you know, what they would, where they would be on this issue simply because of you know, their, their political persuasion. I mean, people were just kind of all over the map. And some said, you know, this was absolutely right. Finally, a man is standing up for a woman in public in a very bold way. This is a good thing. And others said it was just a joke. It was an offensive joke, but, you know, that's not a reason for, for violence, that sort of thing. The slap demanded a response. And, and even in, you know, at the church, we were talking about this issue for days, debating the morality of what was right, what was wrong, what should have happened. So I use this, this silly kind of comparison to introduce this parable, uh, as, as Aaron said, you know, this really challenging parable in Luke chapter 20. This teaching is recorded in three of the four Gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And each records it as being given in the temple, in the temple courts, on the Monday or Tuesday immediately following Palm Sunday, where Jesus identifies himself as the true king of Israel and then cleanses the temple by driving out everybody who's there for selfish gain. So he's putting himself in direct opposition to the political and religious establishment of the city of God. And so until this moment, I mean, Jesus has, he has been mostly just kind of a curious teacher, you know, an intriguing miracle worker out there. But during this week, Jesus himself turns up the pressure, right? He goes all in, you know, with his chips. He, he, um, um, the ante metaphor that I'm not, he ups the ante, he pushes every button of the social, religious, and political establishment. I'm just saying he is the one putting on the pressure. And so it wasn't an accident that by the end of the week, he's hanging on a cross. It is Jesus himself forcing a decision. And the question he's asking Jerusalem and the leaders there and the people there is the same question that earlier he's asked his disciples. Who do you say that I am? 
Who do you say that I am? Not, you know, what do you think of my teachings? Not, do you want to see a miracle? But who do you say that I am? He's forcing a decision for which the people of Jerusalem, they cannot stay ambivalent. They can't stay on the sidelines. They have to choose. And so let's begin. Let's look at this parable in Luke chapter 20. I encourage you to to have your Bibles open there. We'll walk through it. So what's what's the context of this parable? We've already said that it's during Holy Week. It's right after Palm Sunday. Jesus is teaching outside of the temple. And the subject that Luke is recording throughout this whole chapter is this conversation on authority. Does Jesus have the authority to say what he's saying? But then what is it that he's saying? Look at the first verse of that chapter. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. The chief priests and scribes and elders came up and said, tell us by what authority you're doing these things. The reason for the hostility is that Jesus is preaching the good news. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. He's preaching the good news that God is doing a new thing amidst the people. And it's this, that the the chief priests and, and elders and scribes, they're offended by this because Jesus is an intruder. This is their domain. The temple is their domain. They're the ones that have the training. They're the ones that have the expertise. They're the ones who have been given authority by others. They're the ones who have been entrusted with leading the people of God. And here Jesus inserts himself and has a different message. And they see this as a threat, as an intrusion. Who do you think you are? Where did you get this authority? We know where we got our authority. Our authority is established in this city. Where did you get yours? You know, where do you come off preaching the good news in our city? And so against that backdrop, Jesus refuses to answer the question outright. Refuses to answer the question outright of where he gets this, his authority. And then he tells this parable. As Father Aaron just said, you know, parables and stories, they have a way of eliciting emotional reactions within us that even we did not expect. That's the power of story. That's the power of parables. I mean, have you ever ever watched a movie and all of a sudden you find yourself just crying? This tear coming down, you're like, whoa, I don't know where this is coming from. That's what parables do. Parables stir up what's hidden within us. And that's why Jesus tells this parable to the crowd, to the people who are there listening in on this hostility. Where do you get your authority? And so Jesus begins the story in a familiar way. A man planted a vineyard. Everybody, everybody's seen a vineyard before. A man planted a vineyard. And the man let it out to tenants and he went into another country for a long while. And he sent one of his servants to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. All of this is a kind of a familiar setup. You know, the the people of Jerusalem, they'd be familiar with these rich landowners that live far away from their properties where they expect to reap a profit, but there are tenants working there and working there for their livelihood. All of that, all of this is a familiar setup to the story. And then it takes a turn for the absurd. 
right? It takes a turn for the ridiculous, something that in real life absolutely would not happen. The, the tenants, they respond so wickedly to the owner and towards his servants that it's almost unimaginable. So he sends his first servant, his, his spokesman, to gather some of the profits, some of the fruit, and they beat him, and they send him back. And that, in the real world, that should be basically the end of the story. And then after that, the owner mustered, mustered his considerable resources, paid a bunch of mercenaries, kicked these tenants off you know, the land, killed them, whatever, end of story. But the story doesn't end there. Instead, verse 11, he sends another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. You know, it's like that proverb. Okay, fool me once, shame on me. Or shame on you, right? This is the, the line that President Bush messed up a few years ago. I always have his line stuck in my head. <laughs> Can't fool me twice, you know, that thing. Okay, anyways. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. Okay, I'm not going to let this happen again. Surely this time the owner will have learned his lesson. But again, verse 12, and he sent a third. And this one also they wounded and cast out. So now three times he sent one of his spokesmen, one of his servants. And three times he's gotten the same result. So what's Jesus getting at here? What's Jesus getting at? Well, what I think I want you to understand this morning is that this is not one of those parables that's like hard to understand, okay? This is not one of those parables where afterwards the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, can you fill us in? Because everybody was confused and like, we're like your closest friends and we also did not understand <laughs> what you were talking about. This is not one of those parables. Everybody gets the meaning of each of these characters. You know, so, so the idea of a vineyard you know, a vineyard is a familiar metaphor for the people of Israel. In the Psalms, it talks about, you know, the, the people of God, it's, they're like a grapevine that the Lord plucked out of Egypt and then planted in the promised land where it could bear fruit. And elsewhere in Isaiah chapter 5, this vineyard imagery is used again to talk about Israel. So that's clear. And clearly, the owner is God. He is the one that, that owns the vineyard. The tenants clearly are the leaders of Israel. The servants. God's spokesmen, these are the prophets. These are the prophets that God sent time and time again to the people of God. And even that word, servant, that is the same word that is used often throughout the prophets as a name for the prophets, for what they're doing. In the hallmark of a Hebrew prophet, the hallmark of a Hebrew prophet was rejection. And everybody knows that. Everybody knows that's the story. And so up until this point in the parable, Jesus is not saying anything new. And he's not saying anything that's, you know, particularly offensive. This story, this absurd, ridiculous story of an owner who time and time again, it's almost unjust what he's doing to his own servants. Time and time again, sending them only for them to be rejected, to be beaten and sent back. This is the story of Israel. This is the absurd and ridiculous story of Israel, who time and time again rejected God's prophets, rejected his word, and yet were met with this ridiculous and absurd patience 
and mercy and grace. The ridiculousness of this parable is pointing out the ridiculous grace and mercy and patience of Yahweh towards his people. And so you can imagine the people up until now listening to this story, nodding their heads. Yeah, we know this. We know this. We are the, we are the people who have rejected their prophets. But then the hook where he gets their attention comes in verse 13. When the owner of the vineyard steps back and asks himself, now what shall I do? So up until this point, Jesus is talking about the past, about their ancestors, about their collective history, a history that he shares as a Jew. But now he's talking about the present moment. What shall I do? The owner asks. After all of this, what shall I do? He's talking about this generation. And so you can imagine the people, now they're really interested. What's he going to say about us? Not about our ancestors. What's he going to say about us? You can imagine this, the scribes and the chief priests and the elders listening in very intently. We're the tenants now. What's he going to say about us? Verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I know. I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. The owner will send his own son. And of course, there's a great deal behind these words. I mean, that phrase, beloved son, like who's the original beloved son? It's Isaac, right? He's the heir of the promise to Abraham, this beloved son that was put in harm's way, right? So here again in the parable, the beloved son is going to be put in danger, in harm's way. But there's even more behind it than just that. This language of sonship in the Hebrew scriptures, this is messianic language. Who is God's son? That's a name given to the Messiah, the one who will be faithful where Israel has not been faithful, the one who will see God's vindication, the one who will lead Israel out of bondage. And so as Jesus rehearses this history of rejecting the prophets and then says, but then the owner is going to send his son, he is speaking into all of those hopes and longings of this current generation of the people of God. They are living under Roman occupation. They are still waiting a return from exile. They are awaiting the Messiah. And here Jesus is saying, that's what the owner is going to do. He's going to send the one that you've been waiting for. He's going to send the one that you've been praying for, the one that you've been longing for. And so what sounds absurd in the parable, why would any owner put his son in harm's way? These listeners, they know that. It is absurd. But yes, that's the God we believe in. After everything we've done to the prophets, we still believe that he is a God of grace and mercy who will send us the promised Messiah. And then Jesus drops the bomb. Verse 14. But when the tenants saw the son, when they saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they do just that. It's a tragedy. 
This parable is a tragedy. The story doesn't have a happy ending. Jesus is saying, even if the Messiah came, even if you got everything you're longing for, still you would reject him. Still you would treat him shamefully. You would do do even worse than your ancestors did. And notice what this elicits from the people, what immediately is drawn out from them. They say, surely not. Surely not. May it never be. May it never come to pass. That's what this literally means. That would never happen, not to us. Heaven forbid, God forbid that he would send his Messiah and we would miss him. God forbid that he would send his Messiah and we would kill him. It's unthinkable. And can't you relate to this reaction? Surely not, not us. We've learned, we've grown. You know, I think many of us, many of us carry kind of this this shared anxiety about repeating the mistakes of the past. We look back on history and all of these injustices and we say it's got to end with us. Surely we are different. And so Jesus saying this to this group of people, this would be like somebody coming to you and saying, you know, colonialism, remember reading about that? Of course, evil, awful. Remember, remember slavery, abhorrent, disgusting. Remember Jim Crow? Awful, awful, awful. But what if I told you that you and your generation, not those bad people out there, but you and your generation will do far worse than any of those people? I mean, wouldn't you have the same reaction? It's unimaginable. No, no, surely not. Surely not us. It's unthinkable. They might have made those mistakes. Our ancestors, the people in the past, but we would never do that. Surely not. May it never be. Jesus can be incredibly comforting, but he can also be incredibly disconcerting. And this is one of those incredibly disconcerting passages. One of the most disconcerting aspects of the Christian faith is that God showed up and we missed him. God showed up and we missed him. We rejected him. I mean, you think about all of the collective longing in our world to know God to see behind the curtain, to look out on a beautiful scene in nature and to know the maker of that scene. All of the collective longing to see beyond this life and to think that all of those longings were answered of billions of people who have ever lived throughout the world. All of those longings were answered and we missed him. We got exactly what we wanted. God came down. He revealed himself, and we missed him. And that is something that is so startling, so disconcerting, that it's even offensive. Surely not. Surely not. We wouldn't miss him. But we did. And, of course, we continue to miss him. We put ourselves in danger of missing him. When in, when in our pride, we think, 
No, I wouldn't miss him. Now, these people, with their, you know, beliefs about X, Y, and Z, they might miss him, but not me. And then we end up missing him, too, because we're self-deceived. Or we miss him when, in our anger, we fail to see the face of Jesus in somebody who annoys us, or who aggravates us, or who aggrieves us. We miss him when we fail to see the face of Jesus, even in somebody who's hurt us. We miss him when in envy we are so caught up thinking about the things that we want, the life that we want, the situation that we want, that we fail to see the presence and grace of Jesus in our lives today. In all these ways and more, we miss him. We miss Jesus. And yet, And yet, the story does not end there. We rejected him, but he did not reject us. He does not reject us. God knew that this would happen. He was not surprised by the cross. He sent his son anyways. Verse 17. But Jesus looks directly at them in that moment of their aghast. Surely not. He looks directly at them, the text says, and says, what then is this that was written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Rejection is no surprise to God. It is no barrier to his love. It was written in the book all along. Jesus here, the stone that the builders rejected, he's quoting Psalm uh, 118. And this is the very same psalm that, that gets sung when he's riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Hosanna, come save us, Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus quotes that very same psalm here. Why are people singing that? Because this is part of a group of psalms that's sung during Passover week as the people are looking forward to God's faithfulness, looking forward to God sending the promised Messiah, the one that would lead them out of bondage. As they're looking back on their own history, this surprising and unimaginable underdog story that somehow Israel is still on the world map because God has been faithful. And Jesus quotes this very same psalm to talk about his own work. Yes, I'm going to be rejected, but my work will lay a foundation a cornerstone for the people of God so that they can dwell in peace. Jesus knew that he would be rejected. He knew that even riding into Jerusalem, hearing the songs and the praises of the people, the father knew that he was putting his own beloved son in harm's way. And that unlike Isaac, there would not be another being to take to to endure sacrifice, to give its life. But it would be his own beloved son giving his life freely. The father knew that. Jesus knew that. They chose this way all the same. That our rejection, our rejection would not get the last word. And in the resurrection, in the resurrection, Jesus responds to our rejection with a message of peace, and forgiveness. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
And so Jesus presents two options at the end of this passage. He can be for you a foundation stone of a beautiful sanctuary where you find ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in the company of many, many others in the church. Or he can be the stone that causes you to stumble and fall. The the longings and the, the true desires of your heart are laid bare. That's your choice. That's my choice. That's our choice. That was the choice for the people that day. But for Jesus, his decision was clear. His choice was already made. His choice was that the triune love of God would be revealed on the cross. That even in his moment of deepest rejection, his arms would be open wide in love. And that is the hope of Good Friday. That is the hope that we are looking forward to celebrating in just a week. His arms were open wide in love, even in the moment of our rejection. Amen? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.